again. Morning again. All right. I know you all were enthralled in the text in just silent anticipation. Anyway, it's good to be with you and what a full Sunday it is as we have not only sung God's praises and His mercy to us in Christ, but we've gotten to hear um, just the good news from the lips of those whom he has saved and watched the waters of baptism stirred. Well, as we turn our attention now to Matthew chapter 17, we've been building up through the past few weeks um, with Jesus' teaching of his great power and authority. In fact, we saw that all the way back in chapter 16 as, as Peter makes that great confession, as you may remember, where, where Jesus asked, you know, who do people say that I am? And, and the apostles gave various responses, and then he turns the question to them. He says, but who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives that bold declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we see this glorious confession, and And then we follow it up in chapter 17 that not only is is Jesus confessed to be the Christ, but he's revealed to be the Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration where we see that the the, the flesh that has veiled his incarnate deity is is removed in in a sense. And, And we see him for all that he is and all his beauty and all his splendor and the voice The majestic voice from heaven calls out and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Yet Jesus also teaches us something remarkable. Yes, he is the Christ. Yes, he is the the glorious one. Yes, he is the divine son of God. But Jesus begins to reiterate something else. That his glory and his power are not going to come and be manifested to the world in a way that you may expect. They're going to come through his death on the cross and his resurrection after the third day. This is why Jesus says in in two accounts in chapter 16 and 17, for this reason we must go to Jerusalem and I must suffer many things and be killed. Jesus begins to communicate that glory, exaltation, is going to come through his humiliation on the cross. The way up is down. And this news, it was not well received by the disciples, was it? Peter, after this high moment of declaration and confession, he got the Sunday school answer right before all the classmates. And then when Jesus makes this comment that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, Peter's like, hey, Jesus, come over here. We got your back, man. This will never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You do not set your mind on the things of God, but rather you are setting your mind on the things of men. And here is the thing that Jesus is is pressing into us, pressing into his disciples, helping us understand. And in fact, as we continue to follow Jesus all the days of our life, we will learn this lesson time and time and time again. What Jesus says is that 
His glory, his power is going to come through his death and resurrection. But not only that, but his road to the cross is actually going to serve as a pattern for our life as well. The road of the cross is the road of following Christ. But that road leads to resurrection. You want the power of God. You want to see the glory of God. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a massive truth that that most of us in this room know at least mentally. And we could repeat that. Yes, I must deny myself, take up my cross. But very few of us have, have fully contemplated what that means to die daily to self. And yet that's where Christ's power will be manifested. As Christ reminded Paul as he pled with him three times to take that thorn in the flesh away from him. He says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. You want to see the power of God in your life, in your home, in this church, we deny ourselves. We take up our cross and we follow him. Last week, the disciples learned this lesson as as they were faced with a father who brings his child to them child is, is uh, suffering from what we would known as epilepsy, but there's demonic powers at work, and this child is being demonically afflicted, and, and these disciples are unable to do anything about it. They cannot heal this child, and what is scratching their head is that Jesus had commissioned them to raise the dead, cleanse lepers, heal the sick cast out demons, and and no doubt they had been able to do it, but they they weren't able to cast out this demon. And what Jesus has to teach them is that you are relying on your own power to do what I have commanded you. But you must have the faith of a mustard seed. You must have genuine faith, and though it may be small, if it is directed at me, if you throw your complete dependence upon me, The things that I command you to do that you think are just impossible, that you are just unable to accomplish, you will find that I am able to do them. We see that in order to follow Christ, in order to deny ourselves, we're going to have to throw complete dependence upon him. Now most of us, if not all of us, aren't tasked with the impossible mission of casting out demons, are we? Raising the dead, healing the sick, cleansing lepers. Jesus hasn't commanded you to do that as he commanded his disciples. But Jesus has commanded you to deny yourself. And that's impossible for any of you to do, any of us to do. And Jesus, this morning, is going to apply this principle of cross-bearing and self-denial upon us in a way that many of us will find absolutely untenable. 
Maybe not in all circumstances, but there will be a time, there will be a place, there will be circumstances that to obey what Jesus says here, you will find absolutely unrealistic, impossible to do. Say, I won't do it, because I can't. And you must come back to this text and realize that you must plead with him to give you faith that moves mountains in this case, which is to deny yourself. We're going to have to plead with Jesus because what he's, he's going to tell us here today will go against all our pride and all our natural inclinations. Everything within you is going to fight and say, no, I got an exception clause. <laughs> and you're going to have to plead and beg through prayer, Jesus, enable me to do what you call me to do here. We're going to have to exercise that mustard seed of faith. We have a brief story here, don't we? Matt read it for us. Maybe you're familiar with it if you've read through the Gospel of Matthew. It's not one that many people preach on. And in fact, most of us, what we can remember of it is that Jesus has money stashed away in fish. <laughs> And we're like, okay, great. And we move on, right? Uh, what am I supposed to do with that? I've never gone fishing and found money inside its mouth. You know, that would be a great day. But uh, we just don't know what to do with this text. Well, really, the text isn't so much about that miracle. In fact, Matthew doesn't even tell us what happens. It's just the command. And that's because really the miracle at this point isn't the focus of the text. In this brief story, this is a, a conversation between Jesus and Peter about the temple tax. And what Jesus is going to teach us, and, and what he's teaching Peter here, is that the power of the kingdom is not wielded by insisting upon your own rights, but by freely laying them down for the sake of others. That's the untenable part. To wield the power of the kingdom, to do kingdom work, to be walking with Christ is not insisting upon your own rights, but laying them down. That's the point of this story. And what I want you to see this morning, brothers and sisters, is that it is in this way that the kingdom advances. It's going to be in this way that you're going to see the work of God in your own life. Some of you are stuttering, held captive by your sin, and you keep trying to battle it with the flesh, your own powers, your own abilities. And what Jesus is going to teach you here will help you find victory. This is the way in which you're going to see the kingdom advance in your own home. And brothers and sisters, this is how we will see the kingdom advance in the world. But in order for us to adopt this way of living in the world, we must first understand what Jesus tells Peter. We are freed from the world. We're freed from the world. Now the situation that this text brings up is, is kind of foreign to us. Um, we don't have local tax collectors walking through our neighborhoods 
uh, reminding that our taxes are due. We, we get emails about that, right? Uh, we, we have, uh, um, maybe if you don't pay your taxes, you might have people knocking at your door, but we just don't have, you know, just conversations. And this one seems to be pretty nonchalant. Hey, Peter, are you guys going to pay the tax? Um, you know, it's, it's just kind of informal. Besides, what also is kind of unique to this text is that this wasn't an official tax by the Roman government that is going on here. Rather, it was more a tax exemplifying some patriotic duty among the Jews. It was the temple tax, and it was a tax that was deemed to, to help with the, the, the yearly upkeep and maintenance of the temple. And principally, this was grounded all the way back in Moses' instruction to Israel back in Exodus chapter 30. You don't need to turn there, but you might write that down for, for some homework this, this afternoon. But in Exodus, Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16, um, Moses commands Israel that every time a census is taken, and, and that was a yearly thing, that every male adult was to pay a half shackle, about two days' wages the service of the tabernacle. And at that time, the temple wasn't built. It was a tent, and they could, they could roll it up, in, uh, in a sense, and they could move it around through the wilderness, but it had its upkeep. And, and so every year, every adult male was to pay a half shekel, about two days' wages, regardless if you're poor, regardless if you are rich. It was a flat tax, if you will, all for the service of the tabernacle. And while the, uh, this tax had not been consistently applied throughout Israel's history, it was, it was kind of rebirthed in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah as they tried to rebuild the temple. And it was particularly called upon by the Pharisees in Jesus' day in an attempt to say, all right, we've got to get back to the, to the, to the roots. We've got to get back to what God has commanded us to do, and we need to collect this temple tax, and, and we need to obey what Moses said in principle all the way back in chapter 30 of Exodus. And so these tax collectors aren't the same as Matthew, who was the tax collector at his booth, and when the, would be collecting the Roman tax. No, this was, in essence, kind of a, a patriotic tax, if you will. It wasn't an official one. In fact, it wasn't even illegal not to pay it. But not to do so would would surely mark you as ungodly. Yeah, you, you would surely be seen as one who has no reverence for God and his dwelling place. And so you can kind of get the idea behind the question that then is posed to Peter. Where this tax collector comes to him in verse 24 and, and says, does your teacher pay the tax? Does your teacher not pay the tax? Almost like a sense of, where do you guys stand? We've seen a lot of questions posed to Jesus. This one's now coming to Peter, likely because they're at Peter's house. And so there's, they've already maybe heard of Jesus saying things, hey, I've not come to abolish law, but I've come to fulfill it. He's already talking a little bit about the temple and its insignificance for the age to come. And, and perhaps people are saying, all right, where does this guy really stand? Does he stand with God or does he not? Well, we'll find out because he'll put his money where his mouth is. We'll find out. And Peter, Peter, how does he respond? Well, it seemingly says with, without hesitation, well, yes, of course. 
we pay the tax. But what we've noticed ever since chapter 16 is that Peter is often quick to speak, but yet doesn't fully understand what he said. He likes to talk a lot, but he doesn't fully comprehend what he is speaking about. And so when he turns into the house, he goes back in. The text says, Matthew records for us, that, that Jesus spoke to him first. It's as if Jesus says, I got to get start talking to him before he gets going. <laughs> Jesus interrupts and begins to speak. And there's a sense in which perhaps Jesus is exuding some of his omniscience here. He knows a conversation that has already taken place. Or perhaps it it might have been that he just overheard. Either way, Jesus realizes that he needs to speak some more information into Peter. And so Jesus asked him in verse 25, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Pretty simple question, right? You got a ruler, a dynasty, if you will. Who pays the tax in the kingdom? Does the king's sons, does the king's children actually pay the tax? Or is it others who pay the tax? It's not really a trick question. Peter rightly answers. He says, from others, of course. And Jesus makes an absolutely stunning statement then, or conclusion. He goes, then the sons are free. What is Jesus saying? We're free from this tax. That's the implication that he's saying. Peter, you don't understand. You're a child of the king. You don't have to pay the temple tax. The children of the king don't pay the taxes. Those who are not his children pay the taxes. Pretty significant statement here. The children of the king aren't taxed by him. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, I like the implications of this sermon. Well, let me finish, okay? Here's the implication. If you follow Jesus, you're his child. You're adopted into the family of God. And so, directly speaking here, we're not under the law, and we don't have to pay the temple tax. There's no temple tax in Christ's kingdom because there's no temple. Christ has come, and he dwells among us. We don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to turn and pray like Solomon instructs Israel. And if my people turn and pray towards this city and toward this temple, and I will hear their prayer. Guess what? We don't pray to a building. We pray to Christ wherever we are. We're free from having to take pilgrimages to meet with God. We can call upon him, as Kyle said it, on a bridge in a dorm room, wherever you are, you can call upon his name. Not only is there no temple tax in the kingdom, there will be no taxes, period. There are no taxes in the world to come. Why? Because he has freed us from this present evil age. He's freed us from this world which is passing away. Christ has set us free, the scripture says. He's delivered us from the law. And this present age. And this is what this temple tax represents. It represents a bygone era. It's an era that is passing away in light of what Christ is ushering in in his kingdom. 
This is how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 4. Let's turn there. Just keep going to your right. You know where 1 Corinthians is from the scripture reading earlier. You just keep going. And you will find after 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you will find Galatians. And Paul really summarizes what we see in seed form here. The principle that Jesus is enacting, and isn't fully done because the death and resurrection hasn't occurred, but Paul's now able in fullness of God's revelation and his redemptive plans to speak about what Christ has done. And in Galatians chapter 4, I want us to begin in verse 3. This is, this is what Paul reminds the church in Galatia. He says, in the same way we also... When we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. There's a lot there, but you were enslaved to the world, the authorities, the principles, the the things of this world you were enslaved to. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, because you're children of the king, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do you see that same language? You were once a slave to the things of this world, and and they had authority over you. But now God has loved you and has sent his son who put himself under those principles, who put himself under that enslavement, who put himself under the law in order to redeem you from the law so that you might be adopted into his family so that you may be an heir of the kingdom to come. So that you are not under that authority any longer. It's the same idea that Jesus is talking about here. Just it's an incident in the temple text that's bringing this up. So if you come back to our text, what, what, what are we we're seeing here? What does it mean that we are freed by, from, by Christ? What does it mean to have freedom in Christ? We, we talk about it. I'm free in Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does that actually mean for us today? Well, it means, first of all, that you have been liberated from the law and all its demands. You've been liberated, which... Those commands that the law comes, summarized in the Ten Commandments, they could only condemn you because you can never keep them. He's liberated you from enslavement to the law. Furthermore, on the cross, what did Christ do? He paid the penalty for your sins, satisfying the demands of the law on your behalf freeing you from the condemnation of the law so that all your sins are forgiven. And not only that, it has positive benefits. He's adopted you into his family by the Holy Spirit, whereby you are now an heir of the kingdom of God. Only children are are heirs of the throne, right? Heirs of the kingdom. And yet, we have been adopted and become children of the king. And this means that, guess what? You are citizens of a, of a new heavens and a new earth. 
And so right now, as citizens here, we are merely passing through this life, waiting for the king to arrive, whereby he will hand over all things to the Father, and he will surely and he will share all things with us. Brothers and sisters, do you truly understand the magnitude of what Jesus is saying? The sons are free. If we understood the magnitude of what it means to be adopted as a child of God, I think we would live in light of that freedom. We'd stop living in constant guilt that somehow we have to earn God's love. He redeemed you from the curse of the law. He already has saved you, already rescued you, already forgiven you. He has already demonstrated his love for you. You don't have to walk around in guilt if you're in Christ that you have to earn God's love. No, now you can freely walk in the love of God. You can live knowing that God loves you. Walking in the freedom of Christ will stop living for this world because we know this world is passing away. And we can freely live for the world to come. We'll have confidence. We'll have a godly confidence that no matter what earthly powers may be, guess what? They're just temporary. No matter who's in rule, no matter who's in power, no matter what authority has been exerted, it is delegated, borrowed authority, and it is temporary. That can bring you great freedom, my friend. Great freedom. We'll also have victory over our covetous hearts. Covetousness, the, the tenth command, which really summarizes everything if you, if you think about it. I don't have, but I want. How does knowing that you are a child of the kingdom free you from that? You know that our Father freely will share all things with us and He will execute perfect justice on our behalf when Christ comes. That means that there's nothing that you're going to miss out on. Nothing. Though you may miss out on many things in this world. Things may not work out the way that you want, but if you understand that you're a child of the king, when the king arrives, all things are going to change. Because all things are going to be subjected under his feet, and guess what? He's going to share all things with us. We are heirs of this world. You're going to lack nothing. And if you know that, when you are, are, are burdened with whatever covetousness that, that fills your heart, the, the, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, you can say, Christ, if you don't want me to have that now, that's fine. I know that's not good. You withhold no good thing from him who loves you. And I know that I will, er I will inherit all things when you come. So if you know Christ, brothers and sisters, those of you who are here, if you know Christ, then he has set you free from this world. However, as the scriptures tell us elsewhere, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. It's great freedom. 
tremendous freedom that he has given us. And yet what Jesus is now going to to say in the second half of this passage is that, yes, we have been set free. We We are freed from the world, but guess what? We're freed for a purpose. What we're going to see, secondly, is that we are freed to serve the world. There are deep words of wisdom right here in verse 27. However, not to give offense to them. Those seven words are filled with a wealth of wisdom. There is so much packed in 14 and 15. It's expounded upon in passages like First Liberty. How do, we, how do we understand our liberty in Christ? How do we relate to people, not only in the church, but also outside the church? And so Jesus says, the sons are free, however. In order not to offend them. He goes on, he tells this mini parable of sorts to Peter. Not really. He's told this parable about a king, and now he gives instruction. And he says, though the, the children of the king are free from the temple tax, guess what? They're also free to pay it. That's what he says. They're also free to pay it. So, yes, we're going to pay the tax, but for a different reason than you might expect. And to show that Jesus willingly subjected himself to earthly rulers, no one laid down his life for him. He laid it down on his own accord. He he tells Peter, hey, what you're going to do is you're going to go to the sea, you're going to cast a hook, and the first fish you catch, I want you to look in its mouth and you're going to find a shekel, silver coin. That 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 was more than two drachmas, four drachmas. Guess what? That's enough to pay the tax for me and for you. I love what John Calvin notes. He says, Jesus has fish as his tributaries. He's got fish paying his taxes for him. He's not bowing to anybody. No one's forcing Jesus to do anything. And so Jesus shows in a very private manner, all power belongs to him. However, in order not to offend them, pay the tax. Why would Jesus do that? Because love regulates our freedom. That's really what we see here. With all his power and all his authority, we've seen it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He has transformed before them and revealed all his glory, which he will come with his heavenly Father and the angels on the Mount of Transfiguration. With all this power, all this glory, all this authority that it resides in Jesus, and rightfully so, he limits himself to serve the world. For the Son of Man did not come to the world to be served by the world, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want you to think about this. Jesus no doubt was willing to offend people. No doubt. He's been doing it. He's been healing on the Sabbath day. He's been allowing his disciples to to rub wheat and pop the grain on the Sabbath day. He's been calling people to repentance and faith. And yet here, he has a category for not offending people. 
Do you have a category? Now notice, this isn't about, well, this isn't true. No, there are some truths that aren't worth offending people over. That's what Jesus is showing us here. It's not always godly to offend people with the truth. Jesus knew, just think about this, Jesus knew the temple was done. Jesus knew God doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. People, he knew this. Guess what else he knew? He knew that in 30 years, the Romans are going to come and ransack Jerusalem. That temple, not a stone will be left upon it. It is going to burn to the ground. It has no significance in the kingdom of God. That's the truth. That's the truth. That's what he tells Peter, in essence. And yet, he says, just pay the tax. Because we don't want to offend them unnecessarily. Some of us would say, no, 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 no. If I pay the tax, I'm affirming the validity of the temple. And Jesus says, so what? So what? Why doesn't he just want to, why doesn't he offend them? Why doesn't he just say, we don't pay the tax. Go on your way. Because there's more important truth at stake. I love what J.C. Ryle says about this text, and I couldn't improve upon it, so I'm going to quote it in full. It's up on the screen. J.C. Ryle writes this. Sorry, it's small. Just listen and squint. Our Lord's example in this case deserves the attention of all who call themselves Christians. There is deep wisdom in those seven words so that they may not offend them. They teach us plainly that there are matters in which Christ's people ought to sink their own opinions and submit to requirements that they may not thoroughly approve rather than give offense and hinder the gospel of Christ. We should never give up God's rights, but we may sometimes safely give up our own. It may sound very fine and seem very heroic to always be standing out tenaciously for our rights, but it may well be doubted with such a passage as this, whether such tenacity is always wise and shows the mind of Christ. There are occasions when it shows more grace in a Christian to submit rather than to resist. Told you, this will be a hard one to follow. We have been trained, we always resist. We're going to stand up for our rights. That's not the way of Christ. That's not it. Yes, Jesus has set us free from the world. He has. But not that you should be served by the world, but that you should serve the world. That's why he set you free. You have great liberty. You can navigate through all sorts of waters. Those things aren't going to touch you. The way of Christ is not insisting upon our every right, as good and true as they may be, but laying down our rights, our lives if need be, 
so that the only thing offensive to the world would be the message of the cross. Would be Jesus. Nothing that we would do would keep people from seeing the offense of the cross. But too often, and we all do it, don't we? We waste our credibility chips by insisting on rights that are passing away with this present world. We're dying on hills for things that have no kingdom end. Aren't even going to be the things we enjoy in the kingdom. And yet we insist upon them now. And we destroy our Christian witness. This is, brothers and sisters, how you're going to win that unbelieving spouse, family member, by not insisting on your own rights. Mom and dad, this is how you will win your unbelieving children. You've got all kinds of rights in that home. You've got all kinds of authority. And if you wield it at every turn, you will drive them away from Christ. But if you show that you have come to serve them, you may find they too will be adopted in the children as children of God. This is, brothers and sisters, how we'll reach an unbelieving world as well. Not by insisting on our rights, by laying them down to reach them. We don't win people to Christ by dying on every hill, but dying to self from the will. We willingly die to self. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. And if you remember, he lists all kinds of freedom. He gave them all up. Do I not have the right to take a wife? Sure. Do I have the right to take a paycheck? Sure. But I willingly lay them down so that I may reach you, he says. Because those were issues for people. So where is it, brothers and sisters, this morning? Where is it in your life that you're unnecessarily insisting on your own rights? And doing exactly what Jesus tells us not to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Who, who, who lights a lamp and puts it under a basket? Let your light shine before men so they may see your good deeds. And glorify your Father who's in heaven. Where are you insisting on your own rights and putting a basket over the light of Christ? Brothers and sisters, we have to plead, don't we? Because this hits us all. <laughs> hits us all. There are rights we just don't want to give up. <laughs> and we must plead to God that He would give us the mind of Christ, right? who though God did not make use of his divine rights, but freely laid them down, even to the point of death, and death on a cross, to give us eternal life. Jesus says, I have rescued you, I have freed you, and I have given you an example. Whoever wishes to follow me, let him deny himself.
take up his cross and come after me. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you in Jesus' name. Father, because we cannot do this. Every fiber in our being wants to insist on our own way, our own rights, and to die on every hill. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would be working in every one of our hearts for there are myriad and myriads of situations just like this one, like the temple tax that we face. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the mind of Christ. Your spirit would lead us into all truth. Give us wisdom. And that we would know when to insist, when to defend, when to resist, and when to submit when to lay down, and that love would drive us so that we may lead as many people as possible to know you, and that we would not unnecessarily offend anyone. Let only the cross of Christ be the offense that comes from this place. Nothing else. And Lord, where we fail you, Lord, please cover our sins with your abundant grace. Please limit the effects of our foolishness on the, on the minds and hearts of others we have in contact with. Lord, be merciful. And may your power be made perfect in our weakness this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.